When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Katie Hickman, author of Bravehearted, The Women of the American West, 1836 to 1880. I wonder if you could start off by saying a few words about yourself and how you got interested in this project. Right. Okay. Well, hello, everybody from London in England. Um, I am a British historian and novelist, and I have had a lifelong interest in women's history and telling women's stories. And I particularly specialise and enjoy the hunt for stories that have been pushed under the carpet or ignored or, you know, women's voices people thought were not important. People thought that that their testimonies... Uh, it didn't have the same weight as those of men. And so very often, you know, women have been present at periods in history and the West, you know, the the opening up of the West of America is a classic example. They've been present, but somehow the focus has always been through the eyes of men. So I have a lifelong interest in this. I've written a number of books on, on women's history and I always wanted to find a subject Uh, that would bring me to the United States so that I could write about that. And about 10 years ago, I was in Paris, and there's a very famous bookshop there, an English-speaking bookshop called Shakespeare uh, Shakespeare and Co. And I was browsing through the shelves, and I came across this amazing book of beautiful, beautiful black-and-white photographs of women lots and lots of different kinds of women, not just the ones that you would think about, you know, the little house on the prairie kind of women in, you know, white women with wagons and sunbonnets, Uh, all about the westward, um, you know, the westward journeys, you know, women who went on the Oregon Trail or the California Trail in the mid-19th century to, to, um, you know, make new lives for themselves. And I, I, I just had this book on my shelves. I didn't really know what I was going to do with it but I always used to every so often I would take it down dust it off um, and have a look at these beautiful pictures and they showed um, you know not just these white women but they showed women of all these different ethnicities so there were a lot of African-American women there Mexican women there were a lot of Native American women there which was an interesting addition uh, and I write about that you know quite a lot as well you know trying to um, see what these, you know, these migrations looked like from the other side of the fence, so to speak, and um, and so that's really how it came about was from a from a from a book of photographs being inspired by these beautiful pictures and looking at the faces of these women and wondering what their lives were like and what their stories were like. So that's how I came to write Bravehearted. Tell us about the missionary women and why they decided to go west. 
Yes, sure. So the book starts in 1836, which is about four years before most historians would date, uh, you know, the, the very first emigrations west from the Missouri and the Mississippi rivers, you know, across the prairies, um, began in about 1840. Um, but before that, so throughout the first half, first sort of, you know, third of the of the 19th century, the, the area west of the Mississippi River, the Trans-Mississippi West, it's known by historians, was only, you know, it was the home of many hundreds, many, many hundreds of Native American tribes, obviously, but the numbers of white people, white Americans or Frenchmen or Englishmen or any any, any white people who'd been there were extremely small. They were confined to a, a number of, um, you know, usually they were fur traders and trappers, the so-called mountain men, uh, some of whom, you know, became very famous in their own time. And maybe a few male missionaries, but really white people really didn't go west at all in that period. And certainly no women went west. And in fact, it was thought to be an impossible journey. It was a really long journey. If you can imagine from the, you know, the Missouri River, so the so-called jumping off spots were at places like uh, Independence, Missouri and uh, St. Joseph, those little towns on the on the river. It was a long way. It was nearly two and a half thousand miles from, from that those rivers, that river, sorry, to the Pacific Northwest, what is now Oregon, or to what is now California. It was a very long way and it was a hard and it was a dangerous journey. And people thought that white women were just, you know, no one, I don't think people even considered that it was possible for a woman to do that journey. But in 1836, these two really extraordinary uh, white women, one was called Narcissa Whitman and the other was called Eliza Spaulding. And they were Presbyterians, both with a very burning missionary zeal inside them. They had this great ambition. They wanted to travel, not necessarily within the United States, because, of course, Oregon, where they eventually ended up, was not part of the United States then. It was inhabited by Native American tribes and was a land that was disputed between Great Britain and the US. It hadn't yet come into the Union. And so these two women decided that they were going to go they were going to go and preach the word of the, of God um, amongst the Cayuse and the Nez Perce uh, tribes in what was then known as Oregon Territory. And in order to do that, they, they couldn't go as single women, so they had to get married. And this is one of the extraordinary things about them, that you know, the women in the 19th century weren't supposed to have ambitions, but kind of religious ambition, like a proselytizing missionary ambition, was one of the acceptable faces of ambition. And But as a single woman, it was impossible. So they had to marry. And both of them married men within almost days of meeting them. Literally, it was almost like a, like a business arrangement that they came to with their respective husbands. And so in 1836, they set off with these two complete strangers with a um, a caravan belonging to the American Fur Company. So that left St. Louis every year in July, and it travelled west to the Rocky Mountains to a big trade fair. And so that was half the way there. And then the other half of the way, they were going with these uh, other fur traders to 
a place called Fort Vancouver in the north. And, and, they, and they, these two women survived this incredibly rough, difficult journey. It took them five months uh, and they had many adventures along the way, but they made it as far as um, a place. Well, Fort Vancouver was this, actually was a British fur settlement on in what's now Washington State, and so it was an extraordinary achievement. No one thought it could be done. Obviously, Native American women had done it m- many, many times, but these were two white women who'd finally made the overland journey. And after, you know, this, the, the knowledge that this had happened, that, that they had, had done this remarkable thing, gradually seeped back east. And as soon as it became known, once it had been done once, then, oh, well, maybe other people could do it. So two years later, another four missionary women, also Presbyterians, uh, also with their husbands, also with husbands who they barely knew, did the same journey again and they also survived this extraordinary ordeal and so in the in 1840 a tiny one family of what I'm you could call civilians so they were not you know they were just a family traveling together they had no um they were not uh, missionaries or traders uh you know bit by bit these journeys began but if it hadn't been for the two women the, those two first women Narcissa Whitman and Eliza Spaulding uh, it, everyone would have carried on believing that it was a journey that was just impossible for for, for white women to undertake. So they were they were very extraordinary. They really were. I mean, their their endeavour had mixed results, I have to say. But um, I think there is no question at all about the bravery and about the, you know, they were so genuine in their in their beliefs. Uh, it, it it went quite badly wrong in the end, but they their 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 heart, you know, they they believed they were saving the native tribes from damnation, so they had good reason to go. Now, once they got to Van- Fort Vancouver, there was a cultural shock in terms of the Native American women. Tell us about Yes, <laughs> well, so they arrive in this place called Fort Vancouver at the end of this punishing journey, and. It completely stood all their preconceptions about what it might mean to be amongst Native American women on their heads. I mean, obviously, they had had some Native American women were with them on the journey, um, on on the journey from the big trade fair in the Rocky Mountains to, to Fort Vancouver. But they had never really had any significant interactions with those women. And they had, you know, they had a pretty, um, uh, how can I put this? They had, they, they had many, assum- they made many assumptions about Native American, uh, all Native Americans, actually, they, they, in their diaries, they refer to them as savages, they refer to them as, you know, the benighted heathen, they had a kind of very patronizing attitude toward, you know, they thought of themselves as being far superior culturally and in, in every way to the tribes people amongst whom they were hoping to work. But then when they got to Fort Vancouver, they were in for this very interesting surprise because the first lady of Fort Vancouver, no less, was a half Cree woman, Marguerite McLaughlin. Marguerite McLaughlin is, I think, one of my favourite, one of my kind of, you're not supposed to have favourites in a book, it's a bit like having a favourite child, but I... I I just loved her story when I came across it. She was married to this man called um, 
called James McLaughlin, who was a Scotsman, as his name would suggest, and he was the he was the chief factor of Fort Vancouver. So he was the he was the guy in charge. He was the you know the chief, uh, you know the overseer of this whole um, sort of trading endeavor. The only place, incidentally, literally the only place for thousands of miles thousands of miles in every direction where it was possible to acquire anything. So all the goods that they needed, the grain, the livestock, the timber, all the things that they were going to need to set up their mission, they had to get it from Fort Vancouver because there wasn't anywhere else. So it was a this place was a big deal. And the first lady was this was this Cree woman, and uh, she. <laughs> there's actually the picture of her in my book, and it, I don't think it does her much justice because she was rather old when this picture was taken. But John McLaughlin was completely devoted to his wife, and there are these wonderful descriptions of how you know he treat even when how does it go something like even when she was old and flabby. He treated her like a princess, which I love that description. You know, it wasn't just a marriage of convenience, as sometimes those marriages between fur trappers, certainly, and Native American wives were, um, you know, convenience marriages. But this one wasn't. It was clearly a love match. And she was very sophisticated. So this was something that really surprised the two missionary women. She lived in the house within her quarters within Fort Vancouver were much grander and better furnished than I think anything that the two missionary women had ever had in their lives. So she had a beautiful shining mahogany table and dining chairs and she had the McLaughlin family silver at her disposal. And um, she was a very gracious hostess. So she showed the, these women around her, her garden and her strawberry patches. And then the story that I love the most is that is she gave them, it must have, it must have absolutely astonished them because she gave them a lesson in etiquette because Narcissa was going to, was writing a letter home to her parents who were living in the East and it was going to go by sea, which is how most all correspondence would have, would have gone, you know, in those days. And she was about to seal her letter by licking a wafer. I think a wafer is like a kind of, you know, a little piece of paper that you stuck your your letter down with and marguerite said to her no 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 my dear you mustn't you it's terribly rude to send spittle to a friend you mustn't you mustn't do that here have my my family crest it was her husband's family crest here's some sealing wax she lent her some sealing wax and the gold family crest of the mclaughlin family for Narcissa to seal her letter with. And so I kind of, she didn't kind of, you know, I just, I love the thought that this rather quietly, she was showing these two women that maybe they should expand their ideas about what, who Native Americans were and, you know, what their presence might mean in the, in the Northwest and maybe teach them a tiny bit of humility. That's how I like to see it. And, and, they, and Narcissa writes in her diaries how much she loved Marguerite McLaughlin, who was very obviously a very kind woman and everyone who knew her loved her. She was kind and generous and she took these two uh, missionary women in, you know, can you imagine at the end of a five-month-long journey, uh, they needed somewhere where they could rest. And Marguerite was very good to them. So I enjoy that story very much because it completely turns on its head 
every cultural preconception that that, you, that that I think that probably you know not only the Presbyterian missionaries I'm I'm sure that um, there are lots of us who have those preconceptions. Now you use the term country wives. Explain that term to us. Did you say country yes. wives? Oh right. Okay. Well, I mean, you mean in terms of the marriages between um, white men and their Native American yes. wives? Is that what you mean? Country, country, country marriages. Yes. Well, that's a great question. So, uh, Marguerite's um, uh, marriage was, you know, if you can imagine in this area. So we're talking about the Pacific, specifically, well, actually, any anywhere that was in the Trans-Mississippi West, I believe, anywhere that white men went, they very often acquired Native American wives. And these were known as country marriages. Uh, and th- what that meant was that they very often were not uh, t- not marriages in the way that we would consider it to be a marriage. So they weren't t- marriages that were done in church, for example, because... There were no churches. There wasn't anywhere for them to be married. Or there was no paperwork. There was no bureaucracy. There were not marriages in the commonly accepted kind of, um, you know, Euro-American sense of marriage. But they were very frequent uh, uh, nonetheless. And and these were undertaken often by the fur, in fact, almost always by the fur traders and trappers because it conferred, you know, the men were the ones who, who were who who gained by these marriages so they were often strategic in 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 their aim you know if a man if a white fur trapper married into a particular tribe he then had he was then able to have free range over that tribe's lands he was able to trap as much as he wanted you know he kind of wouldn't get into trouble with the with the with the local with the indigenous people so it it was it was it suited him Often it, it, the system was open to abuse, so you know there would be men who would make them make these marriages, and they would already have a white wife and a white family back back east somewhere, and the marriage, the country marriage, was probably only a temporary marriage and wouldn't last that long. And then the man, when he went back east, he would uh, often abandon his uh, wife, and often they had children as well. But the um, the um the hudson's bay company so so there were many different fur companies who traded in furs it was big big money um to be had in those days and fort vancouver where john mclaughlin was this was run by a fur company called the hudson's bay company and what is what i found the, one of the most sort of exciting things that I found it was it was like this wonderful kind of historical detective work that I did I managed to track down an actual marriage certificate because because there were no churches and there were no civil you know it was right out in the middle of nowhere there was no way for these marriages to be formalized properly in the way that European you know, Euro-Americans would consider so that so in order to prevent uh, you know these 
the men abusing the Native American women, the Hudson's Bay Company had its own marriage certificate. And I found a copy of this marriage certificate. It's absolutely wonderful. It says, you know, this is a marriage between so-and-so and so-and-so, and it would give their names, and it would say, and this this um, marriage has to be, as soon as there are the opportunities available, in other words, once there were a churches perhaps built in the area, then the the marriage must be reconsecrated according to the you know the laws of the land and this is what happened with John McLaughlin and his very very dear wife Marguerite um, that they having been country having been a country marriage for most of the time that they were together um, later when um, Portland was built which happened within their lifetime and the, a church you know was built. They went to the church and they got married uh, in, a, in a church. Uh, uh, and it's all there. It's all recorded. So I really like that story as well because it shows you, well, it gives you an idea of what, you know, what life must have been like out west when there were very few people there and kind of everything was up for grabs and everything was being everything was being reinvented and and reworked. Um, and so anyway, that's a great love story. That's a country marriage that had a very happy ending and was a li- lifelong happy, happy uh, liaison. In the chapter Oregon Fever, you talked about a Boston school teacher, um, Hall Jackson Kelly. Can you tell us something yes. about her? So he, this man um, was to some degree responsible for the very first, uh, you know, emigration. These emigrations happened on a yearly basis, starting from 1840. Um, People who wanted to go west would gather together on the river and then they would get their wagons and they would travel across uh, across the prairies, over the Rocky Mountains and then and beyond in groups. And uh, this man, Jackson Kelly, was wrote about Oregon. And the curious thing about it was that he had never been to Oregon himself, but he had heard about Oregon. And he presented this kind of dreamland. It was like a utopia in his in his writings. This la- it was the land of milk and honey. And so he wrote that, you know, everyone must go to Oregon because... Uh, you know, you just drop the seeds on the ground and instantly your crops would grow. That, you know, there was there was some rain, but it wasn't it wasn't rain that would damage your crops. The rain only felt I, I, I think he would say something like the rain only falls like gentle dew and the rivers are so thick with fish. You could literally you didn't even have to put a hook on a you know, on a piece of string. You could put your hands into the river and you could just pull out these big fat fish. And so. People read this fantasy, actually, because he'd never been there. You know, he, he didn't really know what he was talking about. But people read it and they and they believed what he said. And so that he was to a very large degree responsible for what was known as Oregon fever. And a lot of the women who I write about, uh, you know, in the journals that they kept and they often kept them so it's very well uh, documented you know women actually writing about their experiences they they talk they this is what they talk about there's a wonderful character a woman called and, and forgive me if i don't pronounce her name 
correctly, but I, I, I think her name I think her name is Ketera, Ketera Belknap. And she was from um, from Illinois, I think. Um, her family had moved various times. And anyway, she and her family caught what was commonly known as Oregon fever. And she writes in her diary, you know, I've been to see my parents back east to, to, to say goodbye to them. And we've come back and there's nothing here but, you know, the blooms spinning and uh, deals being made all day. And it's the Oregon fever has taken possession of all of us. And it wasn't just her family. It was all her neighbours, you know, it was like a sort of it was something that, you know, it was like a catching, it was a thing that people actually caught. It was well named as Oregon fever because it, it was this, this kind of excitement in the air. Uh, and, you know, if your neighbours were going, well, you wanted to go too because maybe it was true about Oregon being the land of milk and honey. And so you got your wagon outfit together as well. And so that's how these numbers gradually grew. And what I hadn't realized before I started writing and, and I don't know whether your listeners will will, will have realized either is how how slowly it started. You know, the numbers were so small at the beginning. 1840 there was one family who went west to Oregon. 1841 there were a hundred um people who went west to, to this was all to Oregon. Later on it became California. In 1842, it was 200 people who left to go. Then in 1843, it was 1,000 people who left to go. 1844, 5,000 people. You know, so this, you, have, you have a sense of this, like, thunder in the, in the, in the distance, this is kind of rumbling, this rumbling sense of these tiny numbers, and then gradually the numbers increase and increase and increase until suddenly in 1848, gold was discovered in California, which until a whisker beforehand had actually been Mexican sovereign territory. It didn't become part of the United States until, I think, 1848, literally just the time of the gold rush. Uh, And that sparked, you know, yet another, uh, not Oregon, you know, gold fever took over from Oregon fever. And that was all started by this... um, yeah, this Boston school teacher, Jackson Kelly, who'd never been there. So um, that's a good tale as well. Now, you talk about blacks in Missouri, Carletta Gorton Powell's. I thought that was a story of interest. Carlotta Gordon Powell's. It's, I'm sorry, say that again? I couldn't yes, quite hear you. you talked about blacks in Missouri. And one of the stories was about Coletta Gordon Piles. Oh, right. Uh, so I think the one you're referring to is some, uh, is she the one who who uh, was very recently emancipated and didn't have and didn't have the right papers? Uh, she. So I talk a lot about how the how you know the difficult the different difficulties that presented themselves. Uh, when you were attempting a journey to go west, uh, you know, it was difficult for everybody. But if you were black, it was particularly difficult. Uh, Missouri was uh, was a slave state in those days. And so there was an assumption, if you were an African-American, that you were a slave, uh, an enslaved person. And the onus was on you to prove that you were not if you were a freed person. And Carlotta Piles um, uh, was, I forget which state she was from. I think she might have been from uh, Kentucky. And she was given her, a voluntary given, she and her family were given her, 
given their freedom by their the person who owned them was a, a woman uh, who I think sounds it I, I it can hardly even bear to say it but I think she inherited um, them uh, from her husband or something like that anyway she decided that she was going to uh, give this family her, their freedom and they were going to go west but it was extremely dangerous for them to go to Missouri because they you you had to have papers to prove that you were free but because they'd only just been freed in Kentucky, they didn't have the papers. And so in order to go um, to, to go to the Missouri River to get prepared to go west, it was an incredibly dangerous venture. And the woman uh, who had given, given them their freedom, who, you know, who, who uh, in, in whose family they had been before then, whose name I actually can't recall at this exact moment, but she, she d- said that she would go with them. She would travel with this um, African-American family. It was Carlotta and her husband and some children. And they went all the way to St. Louis. And then they found a man you know, there people would hire themselves out as like kind of bodyguards to to accompany uh, black families because it was so dangerous for them. Because there were, you know, there were bounty hunters out there who would try to prey on these people, and um, you know, take them back into captivity. And so the woman um, ended up paying this man a large sum of money to get this family, Carlotta Piles's family, across the border. Uh, across the frontier, it wasn't it wasn't a border as such, and he turned round on the day and said, "Well, you know, you're going to pay me a hundred dollars, but actually, I want a hundred and fifty dollars. You know, a hundred dollars isn't enough." And of course, at that point, what can you do? Uh, you know, you are totally dependent on uh, you're totally dependent on this man. And so the woman, to her eternal credit, paid up. She paid the extra fifty dollars so that Carlotta Piles and her family could then uh, get themselves kitted out and go and go west and find their fortune. And I think there were a lot of African-Americans who, you know, their, their reasons for going west were kind of the same but different to the white people. You know, everyone wanted a new start in life. But for people who, for, you know, black people who were coming with this background of slavery, all very, very, very... Um, serious prejudice against them it was it must have been um an extraordinary um, hope that was held out for them didn't always turn out that well but um you know they they were um they were they were brave now you know looking at the wagon train there was a lot of people who got sick babies were born and camp sickness tell us all about that Wow. Well, I tell you, you know, our ancestors were (laughs) so much tougher than we are. Uh, Well, I speak for myself anyway. So it was it was it was a long, dangerous journey. But and people the thing that people were afraid of most was attack by you know what they called savages everyone was terrified that they were that the you know native tribes were going to turn on them but actually until quite late on in the emigrations that was not the case and in fact there were more white people uh sorry native americans killed by whites than the other way around so it was a kind of perception that people had actually the thing that would most likely to kill you was an accident from your own gun that was very common uh, and 
sickness. So in 1849, which was the year, the big year of the California gold rush, there was also a massive cholera epidemic. And cholera is spread uh, by, you know, people's waste. And so that then gets into the water sources. So it's rivers to spread, uh, spread cholera. So all down the Platte River, which was the sort of corridor leading across the prairies where, where the emigrants, uh, emigrant trains led, were all infected by um, by cholera, and there are these really chilling um, descriptions. There's one diary that I found, which is really just a list of graves, and it will say things like, um, you know, today we came 15 miles, saw 20 graves. Today, you know, we, we travelled on another five miles, saw another 25 graves. You know, people would pass, people who would, they knew if they if you knew that someone in your party was going to die often people would dig the grave before the person had died so as to save time you know you had to be really quite brutally practical in these matters and of course for women with the the pregnancies that they endured and the and the children that they gave birth to en route because in the 19th century there were so many taboos around childbirth and uh you know childbirth and pregnancy that no one talked about it i imagine women probably talked about it amongst themselves but it was they, it was nothing it was not a subject that was generally talked about at all and and so, you know, you can have diaries that say things like, oh, well, today I woke up and I found that I had a baby sister. <laughs> my sister, my little sister was born in the middle of the night. And this might have been in the middle of a, a prairie storm in the middle of the, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Um, there was, there were, there, you know, it goes without saying that there were no facilities. If you happened to have a doctor in your party, you were very lucky indeed. Usually it was women, women friends helping other women. There's one incredible um, description I came across, which, which is of exactly that. It's of, of a woman giving birth in the middle of a storm in the middle of the prairies. And it describes how her women friends were wading around. They had to put her on a, they had to put her sort of mattress, you know, the pallet that she was lying on, on top of a couple of chairs to keep it off the ground. And these women who were trying to, you know, they weren't actual midwives, but they were trying to help her deliver her child, were wading around up to their knees in water because there had been this flash flood. And of course, if a baby's on its way, it doesn't matter what's going on um, around about, the baby's going to come. Uh, and so, you know, women <laughs> women had all the other things like cholera and, you know, people write about camp fever, uh, which could be anything. It could have been typhoid, cholera. You know, people suffered from measles. Measles was a big, was a big killer, smallpox. And women had the additional uh, joy but burden of 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 giving birth uh, in the middle of nowhere. And of course, it wasn't just the giving birth, it was the complications afterwards. So, you know, fevers, you know, post um, postnatal fevers and things killed a lot of women and children as well. I mean, that would have happened even if they'd stayed at home in many cases, but at least if they'd been at home, they would have had their families around them. They would have had their mothers around them. You know, they would have had, uh, you know, a dry bed to sleep on. So I, I think... Those sorts of things, you know, though, though in male descriptions of um, 
these Western emigrations, that you, you, you're not going to get descriptions like that because, you know, it's kind of women's women's business. You know, we we understand it and can imagine it, um, but uh, it was doubly tough for women, and they were, but they were, you know, they were a hardy hardy lot. Now, you talk about the Segler family and their disasters. That was so sad. Yes. So the Sager family actually was one of it was one of the Sagers, Catherine Sager, who wrote in her diary, Oh, and today I woke up and there was a you know, there was a baby sister. So the Sagers were a family of European origin. I think they were German. They were originally German, and they were in one of the very early emigrations, 1844. Uh, so very early on, when the the route was not certain yet, you know, they, um, and it was it, it was a particularly difficult. It was a particularly difficult journey in the in the early times, and they went with a quite a large family. I think there were five children and the mother and father. And to cut quite a long story short, first of all, the father died, uh, and then. About a month later, because of complications in childbirth, um, the mother died as well. And so there were these five children who were all who left orphans. There was no one to look after them. And I think their ages range from kind of early teens, maybe about maybe the eldest boy was kind of, was about 15, I think. And the, but the youngest was a little girl. Well, the youngest was a baby, a newborn baby, but the one up from that was maybe two or three. Uh, and, oh, my goodness, can you imagine what was going to happen to them? So they were looked after by the other people in their in their company who really looked after them very well. But they were really accident-prone. <laughs> so one boy, you know, set himself on fire, nearly blew himself up because he was trying to light a fire. And of course, he didn't really know how. He was maybe seven years old and he poured gunpowder onto the fire and it exploded in his face. Uh, he actually was a miracle. He was okay. The little child, the little girl, the two or three-year-old, rolled out of the wagon in the middle of the night and nearly froze to death you know they were they were <laughs> most dreadful things happened to them along the way but somehow they managed to survive this journey and the captain of this particular company captain shaw he was called um was going to take you know one of the routes into oregon went past the mission that had been set up by narcissa whitman the lady i was talking about at the beginning and this her mission became like a kind of way station for for these emigrants passing by so captain shaw thought well the only the only um the only option really for these children i'm going to ask narcissa if she you know if she can help with these five children. And so he rode on ahead and he talked to her. And Narcissa, who's the, rather a tragic figure, really, Narcissa had had one child and her little girl had died. So she had no children. She had some foster, other foster children, but no children of her own. And so Captain Shaw went and said, look, I've got these, um, these orphan children. Do you think you'll be able to help? And she said, well, I can take the girls. I can take the girls, but not the boys. So, well, you know, that was that was something. And so the, the, the eventually the company reached the, the Whitman mission, it was, as it was known. And there's a really incredibly poignant description. This is a description written by one of the girls, Catherine Sagar, in later life. She wrote a memoir. And she described how 
you know, they, you, can you imagine, they tried to cut each other's hair beforehand, but of course they didn't know how to do that. So their hair was all standing out everywhere. You know, their clothes were in rags, their shoes were falling off them because they, they'd walked so far. So they, they were, they, they, were in a terrible state, these children. And they thought they were going to be, they'd lost their parents and they thought that they were going to be part and they just stood watching Captain Shaw and weeping and weeping and hiding underneath their wagon. And um, Captain Shaw went in and brought Narcissa out and there's this lovely description of Narcissa coming out and she picked up the little baby, this newborn baby, it was a miracle that the child survived at all, and... Uh, took Catherine Sagar, who'd had an accident and <laughs> was another accident, had broken her leg, you know, helped her into the house and they all went into her house and they stood around and told her, her their story. And when Marcus Whitman, so the, um, Narcissa Whitman's husband came in, Narcissa turned to him and said, Dr. Whitman, here are your children. And she adopted all of them. And it was a great story. Yes. Now, you turn to the mines in Chapter 9. Um, tell us about how was it living in a mine town for a woman? <laughs> right. Well, I had a wonderful source who's a woman called um, Louise Clapp. And she went to the mining, um, you know, to mine in uh in California, very shortly, you know, right at the very beginning. She wasn't, her husband was actually a doctor. Well, he was kind of a doctor. Um, He called himself a doctor. I don't think he'd qualified as a doctor, but he certainly practiced as a doctor. And, and, And this couple who were rather middle class, and she was very well educated, you know, she took I can't remember what her books were, but, you know, she kind of took the, I'm slightly extemporizing here, but, you know, the complete works of Shakespeare with her. And she had a she had a very, very English book called The Complete Angler, which is about fishing in, in, in one of our counties, County Buckinghamshire, which is, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a very eccentric choice of book. Um, so she was this educated middle-class woman who ended up in an incredibly rough and ready mining town. And she wrote a series of letters back to her sister in the East, which were later published in a magazine, and they were. And she called herself. She had a sort of, you know, nom de plume. She called herself Dame Shirley, and her letters are absolutely fantastic. I mean, you know, the mining, those mining towns were brutal places, and there were very few women. Uh, and the miners, I have to say, the miners were a, a pretty brutal lot, and they treated the Native Americans. Uh, you know, the Native American, the indigenous tribes in California were brutally treated by the miners so I don't want to kind of sugarcoat any of this but obviously for Louise Clapp she was a a white woman of a a, a, you know very middle class kind of upper middle class so her experience was very different and she wrote this wonderful description very humorous description of the of what life was like in the mines and she had she you know she knew um one of her friends, she's made friends with everyone. And so it was an incredibly varied group of people. So they were aristocrats, you know, South American aristocrats. There were people from all, all over. There were Australian sailors who'd left their ships and, had, you know, gone up to the, to the mines. There were people, you know, from China. There were people from Europe, from Ireland, from everywhere in Europe. Everyone had flocked to California. And so there was a, a really amazing range of people and because she's such a good writer she would do these sort of pen portraits of people and her best description is of this man who she calls 
the Paganini. He, his name was Ned. He was Ned, and he was a black. He was a black man, um, an African American, um, a, a very good cook. I think he'd served as a as a chef on board a ship, uh, and so he could really cook and cook well. And he could also play the violin really beautifully. I mean, this is not your average description of a mining camp, trust me. Um, but she calls him Ned, Ned, my, you know, my, 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 the Paganini of the mining community. And Ned obviously loved this woman, Louise Clapp. And he made, you know, he would do these banquets for them. And she gives recipes, not recipes, sorry, menus in her, in her letters home of the banquets that Ned has prepared for them. Obviously, it's all food out of tins, but, you know, oysters to start with and you know soup and then he caught a salmon in the river and prepared this salmon and you know (laughs) cheese and biscuits I mean you know it was kind of quite fine fare and she writes about this wonderful banquet that he made and then this beautiful music that he played for her afterwards and uh, you know it's an amazing and rather surreal thought that um, despite the fact that they were in the middle of this very, very rough and ready mining community. The finer thing, you know, she managed to, to avail herself of the finer things in life. And it's a very, um, it's a, it's a, she writes really well and her descriptions are wonderful. But I do have to say that, um, you know, most of the experiences in those mining communities was not like that. Um which is what makes them so unusual. Now, you talk about Wyoming and how lots of men, women, and children were shot there. Tell us about that. In where, I'm sorry? Yes. I, I didn't quite catch that. Yes. In Fort Laramie, you talked about the marriage of the French, Dutch, and to the Native Americans. And then you yes. talked about... Um, there was a lot of shooting of men, women, and children. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, there were a lot of shooting of men, women, and children all over. I mean, you know, just to put this in context, in the first, about roughly the first 20 years of, of, of these emigrations happening, you know, the, the, you know, the, the West was opened up to white colonization really is what it was over quite a long period a period of about 40 or 50 years so so and obviously at the beginning it the circumstances were different from how it was in the middle or at the end so at the beginning the, the you know the the indigenous people the tribes people of the prairies for example quite welcomed the um the emigrants are going past because they could trade with them uh and uh you know they didn't see them as a threat but when the numbers started to really mount and you know in the year of the second year of the gold rush in 49 50,000 people made their way across the prairies so it began to affect um, not just the pasture for the bison but it began to affect the migratory patterns of the bison so the native tribes were dependent on the on the bison and there were 30 30 million, 30 million bison, there's that estimate, uh, in the 1830s before before the emigrations began. Uh, and by about the 1870s, they were pretty much extinct. 
So, so that was the impact, the environmental impact that um, these emigrations had, amongst other things. So you can imagine how, from being feeling quite friendly towards the, uh, you know, any white people they saw along the trails, the indigenous people began to wonder um, whether it was such a good idea. And so then there was a period of quite a lot of warfare between, particularly the. Um, the Plains tribe, so uh, in, in the old days, they were called the Sioux. Um, they are the obviously the Lakota people, which are not a number of different, a number of different uh, uh, groups making up the Lakota. Lakota is just one, one among many. That's one example. Uh, and so the Fort Laramie that you mentioned, so again, there were many country marriages between the fur trappers around. So Fort Laramie, just to put it into a, a geographical perspective, Fort Laramie, uh, is um, is it in Wyoming? No, yes. you probably know better yes. than me. I mean, I just know it. I know it as a as a place on the map. So, so yes, it was right slap bang in the middle of both the or you know the Oregon and the California trails were the same, you know, until after the Rocky Mountains, and then they and then they split. So, Fort Laramie was a very important. It was a trading post, like Fort Vancouver, and then later on it was bought by the U.S. Army when the when the American government decided that they needed to protect their interests along the trails, and um, you know it caused it caused a war between between the white uh, colonists, the white settlers, uh, and and the native uh, tribes, and there were, you know, I I mean. <laughs> There were many, many, you know, there was much brutality and many incidents like that. It's it's difficult to call out one in particular uh, because actually, there, you know, there were many of them. Uh, and the Native Americans fought back very, very successfully for quite a long time, uh, which is something that I hadn't realised. Um, and, you know, they also killed white people and the, the same was, you know, meted out to them uh, and but what gave the euro american so the white settlers going west i think what gave them the edge eventually was the fact that they built the transcontinental railroad so it is extraordinary you know 1840 there was nothing i mean nothing there was you know there was a known route known to native americans and to a handful of white traders. And, you know, by 1869, so it's 40, 50, 60, 70, that's just 30 years later, there was a railway line leading all the way from Omaha, Nebraska, to Sacramento in California. It's an extraordinary, it's a quite extraordinary fact. You know, before that, there'd been the Pony Express, you know, uh, but it was incredibly fast. But, the, but the, the point about the railways is that you could move troops around really quickly. So before that, you know, these huge open spaces, which Fort Laramie was one tiny little dot in the middle of this, in, you know, a land the size of, you know, like a, it's like, you know, anyone who's been to the prairies knows what they're like, right? You know, it's like, a, it's like an ocean. It's huge, a huge, enormous area. And so, you know, the Native American tribes could easily just disappear off and they couldn't be found by the, 
by the um, you, you know American troops. But once you had the railways there, you could move people around much more quickly. The railways also really interfered with the with the bison and with the with the you know there was right through the middle of their hunting grounds, uh, and so the situation deteriorated pretty rapidly after that. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's. It, it has so many different things. This story, you know, it, I mean, the story, the story of the of, of of the westward migrations. It has so many stories of incredible resilience and incredible, you know, in, incredible you know bravery and you know people really surmounting these incredible difficulties. Women just keeping going under very very testing circumstances, but also a very big human cost was paid by the indigenous people who were living there originally whose whose lands were taken from them now you talk about um, so many women in the book but i want you to tell us quickly about olive oatman olive oatman well olive oatman is a very interesting um uh was an incredible um, person. So Olive Oatman was a, an American, a young American woman. She, her family were Brewsterites, so they were um, a splinter branch of. Uh, they were more Mormons, but a different, you know, like an alternative branch of of, uh, of Mormons for, uh, who followed this man called I think his name was James Brewster, and they. Um, so James Brewster led a party of people uh, to go down south to what is now Arizona to found, you know, a bit like Salt Lake City was founded by, um, uh, um, oh, having a senior moment now, um, um, Brigham, Brigham Young. Um, James Brewster wanted to do the same thing in, in Arizona. So he took this party of people. Anyway, to cut a long story short, they um, all fell out with one another and various things happened. And Olive Oatman's family ended up traveling on their own all the way down south in Arizona. They were on their way to California. They, they ditched the idea of the land of Bashan. They just wanted to get to California by the southern route. And on, along the way, they were attacked by a group of Yavapai um, Native Americans. And Olive's entire family, apart from one sister, were all massacred by this tribe. And they were taken into captivity and they had a year, a very, very bad year when they were taken as slaves by this tribe, uh, which was, a, I can say it's a common, it wasn't very common, but it was, it was not, they weren't the only ones to whom that happened. It would, it would, it ha- happened with reasonable frequency. Uh, and so they had this one very unhappy year. And then about a year into their enslavement, they were bought by people, uh, uh, traders from another tribe, the Mojave tribe, who took them back to their village and was a completely different situation. They adopted them as their own. They treated them very well. The two sisters were both given these extraordinary tattoos. There's a picture of Olive in my book. This wonderful—they are rather extraordinary—tattoos on the on the on on her sort of facial tattoos. She also had them on her arms, although obviously you couldn't you couldn't really see that. Um, and they she, they so it was Olive and her little sister Marianne. They lived for about five years with the Mojave tribe. 
Um, Marianne died. Um, I think she probably died of starvation at one point. So Olive was left on her own, but she was well treated, almost like a family member by the chieftain and his wife. And about five years into her captivity, an extraordinary thing happened. It turned out that unbeknownst to her, her family had not all been killed, but one, her brother, Lorenzo, he was called, her brother had survived. And her brother made it his sort of lifelong, you know, obsession to try to find his sisters. It's like something out of a out of a movie. Uh, and eventually he did. He 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 um there was a ransom paid and Olive was, you know, ransomed. She was taken back into what the white the white world uh, and she was taken first in the first instance to another US little army post um, uh, da- right down south in, uh, in, 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 in Arizona and interviewed by the captain there and he asked her all these questions were you well treated and she answered yes I was you know you know um, a lot of questions about the treatment she received at the hands of the Mojave and she said absolutely unequivocally she'd been well treated she was treated like a you know like a daughter of the of the of the chieftain's family later on uh, um, a man called the reverend stratton came along and and met these two lorenzo and uh, and olive and he said oh this is an amazing story why don't i write it down for you and so this uh, reverend stratton sort of ghost wrote olive oatman's story olive oatman and her brother lorenzo's story and in the writing of it, there are various versions of it, and it, it and each I think there's about three, two at least two, if not three versions of the same story, and each time, this man Stratton slightly changed the story to make it much more, if I can use the word this word titillating, to make it much more dramatic. Basically, he invented the story and he turned it all round to to. Um, um, not to imply, but it actually state that Olive and her sister had been terribly badly treated by the Mojave. They'd been treated like slaves, which was not the case with the Mojave. You know, that they'd been starved, that there was, you know, it was this whole, it was this whole story about how badly they'd been treated. And, and Olive, Olive Oatman became she became a celebrity in the United States. It's extraordinary. She must have been one of the very first kind of media stars because you can imagine that story, you know, my captivity, you know, amongst the, I'm making quote marks with my fingers now, amongst the savages. Um, it was a story that everyone wanted, everyone wanted to read, everyone wanted to know, you know, had she been, you know, there's a sort of unspoken question mark there. Had she been raped? Had she been, you know, sexually abused? Had she been married even? There was even a theory that maybe she'd had children with a, with one of the tribesmen, never proved. And I, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that she did. Um, but it's a very interesting and quite chilling example, really, of um, how this story was taken and then used almost like propaganda. So instead of telling the true story, which would be, admittedly, one tribe had massacred her family, but then she was essentially saved by the Mojave and treated very well by them. Um, But that was never acknowledged. It was all used as a story to kind of shore up people's idea of what Native Americans were, that they were, you know, this savage, savage barbarians who would do terrible things to white women. So it played into all the fears 
that uh, white people already had, they kind of fanned the flames in a way that wasn't wasn't at all helpful for the native uh, for the native tribes. And and Olive is a rather, you know, when she ends up, she's a rather sort of almost sad figure because you you know you wonder if it was really her intention to kind of you know Stratton took her on the road and he really worked her hard and he made money out of her you know she was a she was a money making machine as far as he was concerned so it's an interesting story but a sad one too now after people read your book what is the message you would like your reader to leave with oh well Um, that's such a good question I think someone asked me the other day about you know because the book's dedicated to my granddaughter I have a I have a a little five-year-old granddaughter uh, and a daughter who's now 23 so two modern young women one modern young woman and one little girl who's going to grow up to be a modern young woman you know what would what, what what could what would the advice be for them? And I think it's, you know, you, you, you are, I think you are capable of so much more than you think you are. You know, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what life throws at you because you will find so much strength in your, within yourself that you didn't know you had. I think that would be, that would be one, that would be one message. And I think the other message is don't you know do we make assumptions about people based on their ethnicity and you know what they look like and you know what class we think they come from but you know we we, we all do it we, we all do it we all have ideas in our head preconceived ideas in our head about what people are like but as soon as you start to listen to people's stories you start to see them as human beings not so much you know, not so unlike you or I. And that was, I think that's, I think when you're talking about, you know, it was the white settlers going west, meeting Native American tribes, was a huge, huge culture clash. And neither side really understood the other side. And I think that that's really the lesson. It's, it's you know, take time to listen to people and to, find the common ground we all have common ground we all have and i think women are particularly good at that is what i would say well i've taken up enough of your time can you tell us the next project you'll be working on oh my word do you know what i for the first time in i've been writing oh i don't even want to tell you how many decades i've been writing for now i've been this is my 10th book Bravehearted, uh and i'm having a little break but I tell you what I am hoping to do. I am hoping to, I did one road trip uh, when I was doing the research for this book. I did, I followed the California Trail from Independence, Missouri. I went all the way along to the to uh, San Francisco. And next year, I want to come back and I want to do the Oregon Trail. That's my, um, that's going to be like my little treat to myself. And I'm having a little... Uh, just a small break, but I would like to write another book about that's set in the States again. I really, you know, um, uh, enjoyed, perhaps isn't the right word, but it was so absorbing writing this book. And I was so gripped by the 
stories that I was uncovering. And uh, I think I would like to write another one that's set in the States, but um, I don't know what that is yet. But maybe when I come and do the Oregon Trail, I will get some ideas then. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.